Do you love king cake? Do you have it flown from New Orleans to where you live? Do you eat it every day during Mardi Gras season? We talk about the history, the tradition, and the controversies of king cake in New Orleans. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Matt Haynes, journalist, food writer, and the author of two books about New Orleans king cake. Welcome, Matt. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really, really interested in these, uh, these two books. You have a children's book and you have a, a book for adults. So let's start with the big one. Tell us about that one. Yeah, sure. I'm also <laughs> interested in that one since I wrote the introduction. That's true. You were a very important part of it. So thank you. <laughs> I, I can't thank you enough for that. So that book, the big book of King Cake, came about to go back a few years. I Before I was a food writer, I was just a, a King Cake lover and I was invited to my first King Cake party back in like 2017 and they said that, uh, was, was that because you were not from new orleans or yeah i wasn't from i'm a new yorker originally okay and so i've been here for 15 years now before i get booed too loud yeah so <laughs> been here for been here for a while but didn't up until that point up until 2017 i saw king cake mostly at like the parade route arouses king cake or something like that uh-huh. and so 2017, I was invited to this king cake party and I was like, oh, that sounds fun. What do I have to do? And they said, you know, everybody brings their favorite king cake and then we'll vote on who the winner is. And I don't even remember what the winner got, but I'm a very competitive person. And so I was like, I need to win this thing. And so I Googled best king cakes, New Orleans. And I found like a top 10 list of king cakes for me and McNulty or something like that. And so I put those 10 into a spreadsheet and then I was like, okay, I'm going to try these 10. But then Below that, I found like top 25 king cakes from somebody else. And (laughs) those 25 were different than those 10. So I had 35 king cakes on my spreadsheet all the way until I eventually had like 140 king cakes on my spreadsheet. And I didn't try them all, but I tried 88 that year. And so, yeah, and it was just amazing. Like, again, I didn't know anything, but I remember like, wow, it's so incredible that there's all these different type, like this one's got peanut butter and banana in it and marshmallow on top. This one's got a sushi king cake. This one, okay, cream cheese and raspberry. That's the, like all these different varieties. And I didn't know anything about it, but they were just, they were beautiful and they were so varied. And so later that year, I decided to leave New Orleans for a second and I hiked the Appalachian Trail and everyone has to have a nickname. And so my nickname, because of what I had just done was King Cake. And so I it was called King Cake for the six month hike. And then when I came back to New Orleans, I started writing. And as I you know, slowly picked up gigs and each carnival season, I just noticed the King Cake articles were doing really well because I knew about so many of them. And so after a few years of that, I thought, well, has anybody ever written a book about King Cake? And it turns out nobody had ever written a book about King Cake. <laughs> they just so ate crazy. King Cake. No one wrote about it. <laughs> yeah, right. It seems so crazy to me. So I'm like, well, shoot, I think this might be a good idea. And so I decided 75 was the number of King Cakes or Baker's that I wanted to feature. And so I started, I remember my first interview was with Tartine, Kara Benson from Tartine, which remains one of my all-time favorite king cakes. 
And, uh, and I thought I was writing a book about cake, but as I was doing the interview with her and just hearing her story, I was like, oh, shoot, this is way more interesting if it's a book about the people who make the cakes. And so that started to become what we rallied the book around is all these different individual stories of like, oh, this person doesn't accidentally make a chocolate king cake. They make a chocolate king cake because they remember when they were a kid, they have all these core memories of making chocolate with their parents. And then they became a chocolatier. And then of course, a chocolatier in New Orleans is going to make a chocolate king cake. And there's every single baker in the book has something some story like that, whether it's where they're from, you know, different country or different part of this country or their childhood memories that resulted in the king cake that they sell now that we love. And so that was the big book. And then I teach a after school. How, how many did you wind up featuring in the book? Yeah, sure. So 75 different. It is bakers. 75. Okay. Yeah, sure did. And then, and then there's also a section about like international king cakes, which is one of my favorites. And so mm-hmm. there's like eight different countries. And I basically just got like, oh, shoot, there's this Swedish king cake. Let me do, or not Swedish, Swiss? German slash Swiss king cake. Yeah. And so let me, I went to like the Swiss society of New Orleans and they're like, oh yeah, we love making these. And so they made me one, for example. So there's a section on those as well, but 75, like, proper bakeries. And then each of them, maybe there'd be anywhere between one and eight king cakes from each of those bakeries. So a lot of, a lot of king cakes were eaten during the making of this book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> did you yeah. gain 30 pounds? <laughs> you know, back then I did better. I'm, as you know, I'm working on a po' boy book right now and I'm gaining a lot more weight doing that <laughs> for some reason. The king cake book, I did this, I would only basically eat king cake, which is not healthy, but calorically it worked out okay. Because I could, as long as I, you know, you get a lot of calories to spend. So I I was not eating vegetables, which my girlfriend wasn't happy about, but I was always really happy when a savory king cake came about because it felt a little healthier. Well, and also you probably had to compress the time that you had to be going around because king, a lot of places don't make king cakes all year round. That's true. But a lot of, I was very thankful. So many of the bakeries, they were willing and actually to, I think, every single photo shoot we did was outside of carnival season. Oh, and wow. So, yeah. So we did it a, a lot during the summer of 2021 into the fall. So we had to deal with the pandemic and Hurricane Ida, but we didn't have to deal with Mardi Gras too much. Well, just for listeners who aren't from New Orleans and may not know so much about King Cake, January 6th is the first day of the season of carnival. And it also is king cake, the beginning of king cake season. And basically, king cake isn't made at many bakeries and not eaten after Mardi Gras Day. So you have a really limited time. This year, in particular, the season is very short because the time between January 6th and Mardi Gras is only about seven weeks or something. And Uh, Sometimes Mardi Gras is late. It's in the end of February or the beginning of March. And so then you have a little bit more time to eat king cake. But this year, it's kind of of short. Not uh, not the shortest, but the shorter than often. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I was asking the question, in case anybody's not from New Orleans and doesn't realize why that makes a difference. Yeah, this was, it's a good point. These were all like, none of these were official. Like you're just, they weren't selling them. I kind of begged them to make a king cake out of season. And it's funny, I would sometimes post like online to show people where we were and like or on Instagram to show the last photo shoot we did. And there'd always be somebody responding like, you can't eat that outside of season. What are you doing? You're going to get us cursed. There's going to be a hurricane because of you. 
I was like, oh my gosh, I hope not. So then I just explained, no, 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 I'm just, <laughs> just for, it's for the book so that it comes out during Carnival. Right, right. Okay, so then also tell us about the other book that you wrote about King Cake. Yes. And so basically I brought the big book of King Cake into a, a, a third grade class. I do an after school program. I was like, oh, they're going to think this is so cool that their teacher, Mr. Matt, wrote this book. And some guy, guys, look at this. And then one of the third graders was like, why would you write a whole book about King Cake as if it was the dumbest thing they'd ever heard in their <laughs> life? And of course, and I was children like, are truth tellers, so they don't hold back. <laughs> no, not at all. So I was like, well, there's a lot of really good read. This is a very special cake. That's why I did it. And so I thought, okay, well, rather than me trying to argue with this kid, I'm just going to write a kid's book about what makes King Cake special. And so it's the story of Miley. She's a third grader who gets the King Cake baby at school. So again, for people who are outside of Louisiana, it's a very common, every Friday, at least in, in almost every classroom, you're going to have a King Cake there. And there's the little plastic baby inside the cake. And whoever gets the slice with the cake is crowned king or queen of the classroom party. And then they're responsible for bringing the king cake to next Friday's party. And so Miley gets that responsibility. And while all the other kids are cheering for about their favorite kind of king cakes they hope she brings, she starts to get really nervous and anxious because like, holy cow, there's so many different kinds of king cake. Which one is she going to choose? And so she goes home and kind of voices her fear to her dad who has this idea of you know, putting the plastic baby under her pillow. And so maybe she'll dream about a solution. And in her dream, that plastic baby gets real big, still stays really nice, but really big and offers to fly her around to real New Orleans bakeries to kind of learn what makes King Cake special and to see all of the different options she has. And so they go to, again, these real bakeries and each spot has a different idea of what is important about King Cake. So kids can learn that. So do you think that a child who doesn't really know anything about king cake because they're from Denver or they're from San Francisco or something like that would enjoy that that book? Yeah, and in fact a lot of people, a lot of grandparents in Louisiana for example whose grandkids have, you know, whose parents whose kids have moved elsewhere and brought their grandkids with them, they'll send them out there as gifts because it's a chance to it, it really in the first pages kind of outlines what the king cake tradition is. So it starts very basic. And mm -hmm. then as we go through the different bakeries, kind of gets into a little bit more of the intricacies about what makes it special, whether it's history or tradition or the flavors or the colors or the time of year are all different things. But it really starts with, well, why is there a baby in this king cake? And why are we eating at this time of year? And what do these colors mean on top of the cake? So why is there a baby in the king cake? Well, this is the most most controversial thing from what I've learned. And I think it's so cool. I was at a, a library a presentation last night on the Algiers Point Library, and somebody asked the question, and it really created a little bit of a stir. But I think it's so fun because there's no, the, the short answer is nobody knows for sure why there's a baby in there. But, and there's a lot of, there's some different competing views from what I understand. So one of them is that it's, one of them is that a very common one here is that the baby represents baby Jesus. So okay. that's a very, a very, a very common thought. I can see you shaking your head. So I feel like you, you disagree with this one. And I also disagree with this one, but I think most people here believe that to be the case. And, and I think there is one good argument in its favor, but I'll get to that in a second. The otherwise... The story that the owners of Mackenzie's told in interviews back in like the 30s and 40s and or 40s and 50s 
or rather they were owners back in the 40s and 50s. And these are interviews toward the end of Donald Entringer's life. They're a great set of interviews. But he said that back in when they started King Cakes back in the 1930s and 40s, they had just a, a bean or a pecan oftentimes inside the cake. But the issue with that was that, you know, the tradition is you have to buy the next king cake if you have, if you got the slice with that object. But if it's a pecan, you can just swallow and you don't want to buy the cake. You just swallow the pecan and nobody knows you ever got it. And so he was getting frustrated with that. And he's like, well, we need to find a way to stop people from doing that. What if we put something more permanent inside the cake? And he says that one day, a traveling salesman with a briefcase full of ceramic babies came into the store and he's like, shoot, maybe that will be, maybe that's something that we could, we could use. And so he bought a bunch of those and put them in the cakes and they were really popular. And for decades, they were using these ceramic uh, babies. And then eventually those were getting very expensive. So he just bought plastic babies instead. And he says it has nothing to do with religion. He just thought it was a cute idea. So I remember those, those ceramic things. Um, and uh, because I, I mean, I wasn't even a child. I was a, you know, 13, 14, something like that. And we used to call them baby dolls. We didn't call them baby. Mm -hmm. And they were what are called frozen charlottes. Right. And so do you talk about frozen charlottes and the kills and all that and what they were yeah. for? Yeah. yeah. Just, so, just little bits here and there in the book. And I've got kind of these historical inserts in the big book of King Cake that get into you know, there was, it started with a bean and then later on it were these fevs. And I tell, there's so many fun stories about fevs. And uh, from my understanding, but I feel like you, you will know maybe some, some things about this tradition that I don't know. It was common to have things like frozen charlottes inside like birthday cakes, for example, like before people were using babies inside king cakes at all. That was just a tradition. I think meant uh, from what I understand, I've read some place that says it's kind of meant as a good luck charm. And then I've heard for other people saying it's actually more the, the frozen Charlotte story is a little bit of a tragic one. And so it's meant to teach kids, hey, you got to still congratulations on your birthday, but still mind your parents. <laughs> I, think, I think the frozen Charlotte story is a about a girl who she was going to a ball and on horseback or in a carriage. And she didn't want to wear her coat because she wanted to show off her dress. And her mom's like, no, put that coat on. And she refused. And then she froze to death in this carriage ride, I believe. is Yeah, what I yeah I, it is a, a crazy, crazy story. The other thing that they used to say about frozen Charlottes is that the bisque doll that was used in the kilns and they were manufactured, these little bisque dolls. So that means they'd been through one firing, but not a second firing. And when you had to put a fire in the kiln every, whenever, every time you started the kiln, because you built a fire and every fire is different, you had to run a kind of test run to find out where the hot spots in the kiln were. And the frozen charlottes, which were these, they were long and thin, like a little pipe. They would twist and bend and whatever in the hot spots. And so it was a way to identify the hot spots in a kiln. But wow. as we started to transfer onto electric kilns, where your heating elements are always in the same place, once you know where the hot spots in your particular kiln are, they're always in the same place because you aren't moving the heating elements. So there's no need to test every single time you make a fire because you're not making a fire anymore. You have an electric kiln. So 
they stopped making frozen charlottes, but they were also called frozen charlottes because they were non-articulated. The doll was just this kind of pipe that very, very vaguely looked like a person with arms and legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't move because it was really just a little pipe that could bend in the kiln. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered whether the the story about the frozen Charlotte came after the the pipes or whether the pipe the little pipes came first. I, I don't know, but I think it's a kind of interesting. Yeah. And I remember when they really started running out of those because they stopped being manufactured and they started to use little China uh, sort of cupie dolls, also yeah. not articulated. And, and then, but the people of New Orleans started calling the baby dolls babies just because it was shorter. And that's what made them think that they needed to put a baby in instead of a baby doll. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so I think that's, that's interesting. Cool. I also think that in, in places like Mexico or people of Mexican descent have told me over and over again that it's absolutely the baby Jesus. And I think when you start thinking about king cakes and you think about the fact that New Orleans is really too warm to make a good puff pastry because mm-hmm. you can't really chill the dough. And once you start working with it, it starts to melt because of the warmth of your hands. And if you were making puff pastry in today, you just pop it in the freezer or the refrigerator and chill it again. But mm-hmm. you can't do that before there's electricity or anything. And so nobody's going to make that kind of puff pastry type of thing that here in New Orleans we call a French king cake, even though our king cake was also kind of a French king cake, but it's what's eaten in South France as opposed to the northern part of France and also in northern Spain. Mm -hmm. So I always wondered whether there was a Basque component in that because yeah exactly i think so and nola.com wrote a great article a few years ago i think about they were just tracking early french settlers names and Uh they all seem to come from south france which lends the idea of like it being from south and then also you just look at a picture of a of a good tote from southern france or or the rosca de reyes from spain oh yeah Uh, exactly much more like our king cake than a galette That's right. That's right. And also then of course the Spanish took over. They were, they were, the Spanish ruled in new Orleans longer than the French. And, um, and so then you had that reinforcement of this kind of king cake. And so, you know, I love learning about the, I'll try to do it, the abbreviated version, but we're just talking about how in Mexico, they are very adamant that this is the baby Jesus inside their Rosca de Reyes or cake of Kings. Uh-huh. And so the tradition I think is so, so interesting because it ties to many of many American traditions that I had no idea were connected. And so on January 6th, so on 12th night, while we're just starting to eat our king cake, you know, cause we associate it with carnival season, they associate it with the 12 nights of Christmas. Mm-hmm. So on the 12th night, they're eating their Rosca de Reyes and there's their baby Jesus hidden inside. Right. Yep. Whoever right. gets the slice with the baby Jesus, they then hang on to that. And they're responsible for on February 2nd, which is, the, is for us is Groundhog's Day. But on February 2nd, they bring the baby Jesus to church 
And then they, after everyone goes to church, they then go back to whoever got the baby's house because that person's responsible for hosting a big tamale party on February 2nd. <laughs> so what we're doing, and the the reason they would go to church on February 2nd historically is because it was called Candlemas. So that's when, before there was electricity in Europe, you'd be bringing your, you got enough candles in the start of winter to get you until about February 2nd. And then they were deciding like religious leaders were trying to determine how long winter would go on for. And so depending on how long it would go on for, they'd give you longer or shorter candles. And so that's also what the groundhog's trying to decide. That's so right. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, I love the way everything is connected to something that happened before. And we think everything that's happening right now is the way it always was, but that's yeah, yeah. never the case. I mean, I love I love the whole pagan idea of picking a... a f- a substitute king so that there's a day when there's the king from the people, the people's king kind of thing. And they crown that person and all that. And that yeah. person is the king for the day. Yeah. The king and, or queen of Saturnalia. Is what yes, they exactly. Been. Exactly. I, I, I love that too. And then a bean works as well as anything else. If you find that in your cake, you know, Yeah, yeah. and they, they said that for the earliest pagan Romans, at least when they were doing this tradition, if you got the bean inside your cake, you were, like we said, king or queen of Saturnalia. But then instead of having to buy the next cake, you were sacrificed to the gods. Exactly. (laughs) Much higher stakes than what we have. I'm sure that would make me want to swallow the bean a lot more than worried about whether I had to buy the next cake. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I would do whatever it takes not to get that. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. That that whole Saturnalia thing, I think is really is really great. But we and clearly we adopted in New Orleans the Saturnalia like um festival part of it. So that part is, is yeah, they'd be in colorful costumes, the schools would be closed, churches would be cl- or courts would be closed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. They would do big feasts, drink too much, sing a lot, eat too much, all things that sound a lot like our Mardi Gras. Right. Exactly. Exactly. For sure. For sure. So tell me when you read to children from the, the, the children's book, what's the name of the children's book? The Little Book of King Cake. So there's the big book of King Cake and then I did the Little Book of King Cake. Okay. When you read from the little one, how do they react? What is their general feeling? Yeah. You know, I try to keep it very interactive. So it's fun to see what age kids start to understand some of these traditions, like even very young kids understand like the whole thing about the baby. And so they're excited to, to, I think it's exciting for, for anyone to see your traditions outlined in a book that you're reading is a pretty exciting thing. Uh And, And then, so I think the book kind of starts with some of those traditions. And so maybe they're learning a little bit about ones they didn't know. Maybe they're seeing kind of a mirror reflection of some that they did. And then when the baby gets big, they, they kind of lose it. It's a very, they, they, the idea of a giant baby seems like the funniest thing they've ever heard. And then, and then it brings them to real places. And, and I usually ask, you know, as we're going through, try to take a poll of, you know, which king cakes they're most excited about. And so the chocolate one tends to be one. So he, all the king cakes are person, personified as well. So the king, the chocolate one's a pretty funny king cake. And so they like that one. The last one we have in the story is a cricket king cake from the Ottoman and sectarium. And so that tends to drive the kids nuts because they're all <laughs> trying to decide whether they're brave enough to eat a cricket king cake or not. So that's pretty fun. Yeah, it's really interactive. And 
What I've heard a lot of parents say that their, their kids want to read this book over and over again. And so that makes me feel really good, but I'm sure it's a little annoying for the parents sometimes, but. Well, I'm anxious for when you read at, at SoFab that people see the big king cake baby that we have at the museum. So we'll see how, how they identify that with, with the baby in the book. I think that'll yeah. be fun. Can it be rolled out? Can we get it? No. <laughs> no, I, it's attached to that post so that people can't fall, make it fall over. So, got it. Uh, fair. Yeah, and and it's heavy enough that we wouldn't have to. We'd have to lift it up. It's really it's it's fixed. Too much. It's yeah, fixed. that's fair. Yes. Yeah. We could do the reading beside it or something. Oh yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, that we'll do it over there between the Mackenzie sign and the <laughs> baby. Yeah. Great. That'll be fun. I cannot wait. I'm very excited for that. So tell me what else you're working on, because I know you've got some other food books in the works. Yeah. So the next big project is the big book of Po' Boy. And so when I did the big book of King Cake, I didn't think too much about why I felt it was a good idea. It just felt like, oh, this seems like something people will like. Then trying to figure out what the next book, you know, it did, it did well. And so trying to figure out what the next book that could maybe do kind of find the same success I, well, what, what was appealing about the King Cake book? And I think one, it's something that's almost universally loved, but there's this really passionate debate about who makes the best ones and which varieties are great versus too weird. And it's also a food that continues to evolve. And I think all of those things exist in po' boys as well, which is why the big book of po' boys seemed like a good next option. You've got some very traditional po' boys from, from places that have been making them for a century now mm-hmm. so you got a lot of these, you know, fried shrimp or roast beef po' boys, fried oyster po' boys. But then you also like I just we just did a photo shoot recently, a vegan. It's called Small Mart, a vegan shop down in the Bywater, and they have a trio of Indian po' boys that are completely vegan. And so, I think a lot of people would say that's not a po' boy, but why? Why not? I don't know. It's a good debate to have, and I think it's a similar thing with the King Cake book. Some people will say that. A Mackenzie's king cake is a king cake and everything else is a cinnamon roll, they might say. Or some people might say, I'm okay with all of these being king cakes until we start getting to like octopus king cake. I'm not so sure. And <laughs> it's, a similar, it's a similar thing. You know, there's a lot of different people have different tolerances around what should be a po' boy and what shouldn't. And is it just a matter of using the right kind of bread? Well, if that's the case, then a lot of po' boy shops now, ones that we most people will agree is a po' boy use Dong Fang's bread, which is not a traditional French, you know, French bread that one would use for po' boys. And so right. it's not a po' boy. I don't know. It's up to the people to decide, but I like encouraging that debate. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we can have bun mi in, in the po' boy festival, for example, and yeah. also that um, we can actually take that little quick, pickles that are on the bun mi and have them at some poor boy places give you a choice now you don't just get pickles on your po boy you could get some of those those pickled vegetables on your po boy instead and i I love that i love the fact that it's constantly evolving and yeah that's what one of the uh, one of the bakers in the king cake book she's an ice cream maker but she makes this ice cream king cake she said that king cake and all she said all foods should should continue to evolve to kind of match our tastes yes. and other otherwise it's like disney world she said it's like a, just putting it in a time capsule and saying this is what it is and also like it's silly to say 
to say that McKenzie's would be the only type of king cake is a little bit of a weird thing to say, I think, because it had been evolving for thousands of years. Like if, <laughs> if those people in ancient Rome <laughs> saw McKenzie's king cake, they would say, what in the world is this? My girlfriend, she works for a, one of her clients is, is a French, is French. And uh, she showed them the big book of king cake and they have their galette de wah. And she looked at this at a king cake. She's like, what in the world are these things? They can't possibly be the same tradition because they're always evolving. Right. It's always, it is, it's always evolving. And I, all right. So I'll tell you two stories. One is that I had a bun me, a bun me that was, had foie gras on it because that's not an unusual thing, but it also had fried oysters on top of that. And that to me was like the perfect marriage. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I think is really interesting is I have this dream and I've never had this king cake, but it's, a, it's I mean, oh boy, but it's a dream of mine to have fried calamari. Oh boy. That's a great idea. Um, I just can see it, you know, all these little fried rings on there piled up the way you pile up shrimp or something on your po' boy and then put everything else on top of that. I love, I love a fried, a, a fried soft shell crab po' boy. That's one of my very favorites, but yeah. I think a fried calamari would be really good too. You have a calamari recipe in your, uh, in your most recent book? I don't. I don't have a fried calamari recipe because it's not easy to get. And so that's why I kind of said, well, why should I put this in and then have everybody say to me, I can't get it. I can't even right, try right. this, you know? So no. When's your birthday, Liz? My birthday is February 5th. Okay. Coming up. I'm going <laughs> to, I've got yeah, some You're going to get me a calamari. <laughs> A calamari. Yeah, oh, 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 that'd be yeah. so great. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to forget best. that. <laughs> I'm not really trying. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's, it's it, We're sort of at, at the tone, the end of our time. I wanted to, to just get, have you give us the names of your two King Cake books again. Mm -hmm. Sure. There's the Big Book of King Cake, which uh -huh. is a 368-page coffee table book featuring 75 different bakeries from around mostly New Orleans and features thousands of photos. And then there's the Little Book of King Cake, which is the children's book. And so, and when can we expect the Po' Boy book? It's a real, it's a real raging debate over here. And <laughs> so originally the idea was to have it out for November 20, November of this year. But I really underestimated the amount of time that, or the amount of time it would take to both market the King Cake books while continuing to create the Po' Boy books and just do my regular job as a journalist. And so I'm thinking I'm going to need a little bit more time. And so I'd say certainly without a doubt by November, 2025, possibly, or I'm sorry, probably like September, 2025 could be the spring before that potentially. Okay. So then we're going to have two books in your book series about food, New Orleans food. Have, yeah. you, have you been dreaming at all about what the next one will be or are, are you not there yet? I'm always thinking about them. And so, so a lot of people say you got to do like the big book of gumbo or the big book of jambalaya, which are great ideas, except I feel like gumbo and jambalaya, they look kind of the big book of gumbo is 75 different gumbo shops. I don't think they look varied enough. Uh -huh. to get that many. And so one idea that I really liked was the big book of crawfish. And so maybe 75 different crawfish inspired recipes. So like crawfish featured recipes at restaurants around New Orleans and Louisiana. 
I thought yeah. could be kind of a fun one. And, and crawfish, especially still in their shell, are definitely photogenic. There's yes. no question about that. Yeah, yeah, getting a bunch of those. And again, that won't be 75 of, of uh, boiled crawfish, but having a few of like some of those as the start and then, you know, going to see how all the different ways that New Orleanians and Louisianians are using them, I think yeah. would be a, yeah. make a, good, a good book. I think, I think that'd be really interesting too. Well, thanks so much. It's been really fun. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun talking to you and I'm looking forward to the kids book reading in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, a part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Subscribe to this and other food and drink related podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to keep up with me, Liz Williams, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, also called Tip of the Tongue, for more information about this podcast, recipes, and just what is going on. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.